You have to. I said to my lunch partner, you have to. I was a fledgling seminary student at the time, and he was a degreed minister. I was a newlywed, and he was a husband and a father. He was my senior in age, in training, in experience ministerially, and as a father, but here I was telling him what to do. The Christian leader seated across from me at this lunch was fretting about whether or not to talk with his school-aged children about sexuality. It was clear from our conversation that his kids were hearing plenty from the neighborhood friends, but he was hesitant. You have to, I said. It's a moral obligation. And 20 years later, with children and ministry experience of my own, I would give him the same counsel for two reasons. And two reasons that inform the present series in which we find ourselves. The first is a negative conviction. And that is that our culture's view of sexuality is desperately broken and terribly destructive. We are under severe assault from Satan in this area. Picture yourself, your pioneer family with a claim on the Great Plains, you're all by yourself. You see dust rising in the distance one afternoon, and you realize that coming toward your family is a gang of drunken bandits headed straight at you at full speed. You really don't want to toss a rifle into the hands of your eight-year-old son, but you really don't have an option. God's revealed truth and moral counsel concerning sexuality is under full-scale assault in this nation. And if we don't understand that, we need to wake up and face it. Let me give you just one glimpse. It's frightening. And I give it that we might be frightened as we struggle against sin and seek to avoid it. We don't live in a culture that does that. One glimpse in the secular New York magazine, columnist Naomi Wolf claims that America has, via the internet, become pornographized, is a word that's being used. She quotes another author who says, it's the wallpaper of our culture. The unanticipated effect, she goes on to say, is that the current generation of young men at secular universities is becoming virtually incapable of finding interest in a real woman's body. And she backs this up with much interviewing and research. Learning sex from porn stars on the internet, young men are finding real women do not measure up, are not worth the effort, and don't even stimulate. Wolf claims that promiscuous female university students, available young women, widely acknowledge this situation as a major, if not the major, problem in their dating relationships. Just one glimpse of the horror that is taking place in this land. And who knows where this will lead. Conviction, too, is a positive one, and that is that God talks frankly and respectably to His children about sexual matters, and we should do the same. One, we're in great danger, but secondly, we follow our Father's exemplar here. As our model, He lays out this conversation and has it with us freely. 
And it is my intention that no child will ever leave this church claiming the topic of human sexuality was avoided by embarrassed adults. Our children should know exactly what their elders think about the topic, and that counsel should flow knowledgeably and winsomely from the Scriptures. It's also my prayer, then, that frank, earnest discussion on this matter will fortify all of us against failing God in this area. Will fortify all of us to stand according to God's calling and to hold each other up in this matter. Having staked these two convictions, let me add that this battle is, at its very core, a spiritual battle to trust the goodness of God. That is really what is at issue here. To trust the goodness of God and thus to heed His counsel by controlling our desires. It's a novel thought in this culture that we can do that, but we can and must control what we choose to desire. Like Adam and Eve, we are routinely tempted to believe the lie that greater joy and greater pleasure is attainable by breaking free from God's counsel. It's utter insanity. But we buy this lie. We are also tempted to yield to desires that supplant our desire to know and love God with all of our heart. Little desires taking small liberties which all of the time deaden our desire for God. Well, it's right at this crucial battle line that Proverbs 6 meets us. And meets us with the gentle yet firm counsel of God. The compassionate but strong word of the Lord. In Proverbs 6, verses 20 through 25, Our Heavenly Father labors to fortify His children against sexual sin, starting with, first of all, a call to heed parental wisdom. Verse 20, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. In the context here, the parental instruction is to arm young men against sexual temptation. As we go down to verses 24 and 25, that is the key to this section. That's where it hinges. But beginning as we make our way down to that center of the instruction, there is first this call to listen to what your parents say. This constitutes certainly a call from God to all of us. I think we should apply it that way. Obviously, contextually here on a human level, the implication is that parents should provide such counsel to their children. And we need to stop right here at this place and ask that question or investigate that idea. One thing is the church's responsibility, and that is a significant responsibility. In our church, there need to be sermons that are preached on this matter. I don't think often, I don't think predominant as a theme among us, but they certainly need to be sounded. Secondly, in the teaching hour that we have as we break up into smaller groups, it needs to be sounded there in teen meetings on Wednesday night, which in fact we are partly doing right now, uh, in teen seminars, in young adult seminars, in discipleship relationships between adults and young people. This is a message that needs to be sounded in the church. But that sounding should really bolster and encourage what is happening within families. Parents, have you delivered sufficient teaching that your children have something to bind on their hearts? 
to carry around their necks to guide them into the situations of life that they may face. Is that teaching there? And again, it is sad. It is not what I would choose, and I don't know that any of us would, but we are in a world where very young children are being exposed to ideas and concepts and sights. We've got to arm them. We've got to throw the rifle into their hands and say, shoot. Now, there's an appropriate level for various ages. I understand that, but we've got to arm them. Does your walk with God, parents, inoculate you against the silence of guilt? It's hard to preach a sermon you don't live. Is your knowledge of God's truth sufficient to deliver the goods on this? Not simply as a list of don'ts. But do you have sufficient knowledge of Scripture to lay out the beauty of God's plan for all people and all time and all situations and circumstances? Can you deliver it? That instruction is not helpful, of course, unless it is heeded. And that is God's call to all of us as His children and contextually to the young men at court here, verse 22. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. The they's here are all literally she. A singular idea. That is the instruction of mother and father taken as a single unit. This instruction will guide you. It will lead you. It will watch over you. At night and in the day, at all times, it will never fail you. It's a constant companion. This word lead you is translated here, lead you, commonly used of a shepherd guiding sheep through trouble to safety. This is what the instruction of elders is to do for the young generation, to guard them and guide them along life's path. Verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp. Think pot, oil, wick, that kind of a lamp is the idea that they have here. But it's, it's providing light in the darkness. Verse 23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Godly counsel serves to enlighten us in a dark world. And praise God for good counsel. If you received any of it in your growing up days, thank God for it. If you receive any of it in this assembly, thank God for good counsel. Praise God for people who speak wisdom to us so that we avoid sin and its devastating consequences. It is seldom, if ever, enjoyable to receive reproof or correction, but if you veer off the path of life and start walking down a path leading to destruction, someone's word of rebuke is an exquisite gift of grace. How I've received those words of rebuke from my family in growing up days and from good pastors, and how I thank God for it. I needed rebuke. I needed much rebuke. I didn't get as much as I wanted and should have had, but I received it, and I'm thankful now for it. What is the gist of the teaching in view of this context? Verse 24, it is this. So you are to take on your parents' guidance, the word of the Lord, to guard you, to give you light, to enlighten you through life's path. And here's what it is all for, verse 24, as we get to the major theme, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. There's a certain kind of woman godly parents want their sons to avoid, and we apply that the other direction as well, and for all of us at any age in our life. But she is evil. 
That is, she is bent on doing what is wrong. Secondly, she uses provocative, seductive speech. That is, she says the things a young man naturally likes to hear. What he needs to do is tune out her voice and listen to what his elders have taught him. The wise counsel. Watke writes so well here, her tongue threatens to cut apart the very fabric of the godly home at the seam where the generations are sewn together. Her voice will attack his heart or his voice will attack her heart. There needs to be a willingness to understand there are people in this world that we must avoid. She's evil. She uses provocative speech. She is, thirdly, an adulteress. The Hebrew word stranger or foreigner. That is, she is estranged from her own circle of legitimate intimacy, and she is out of his circle of legitimate intimacy. She's a stranger to this whole concept. What you must do is resist her. The words of good counsel are what preserve you from someone who is bent in this direction to tempt and to harm. Now there's a lot of ways of going about this. The most novel I've heard recently, 16th century English diplomat and scholar Sir Thomas Elliot penned a book dedicated to King Henry VIII entitled The Boak Named the Governor. I'm not quite sure what that all means, but I need to do some more research there. But The Boak Named the Governor. But it's written in the 16th century. So. But it laid out an educational plan for young men destined to fill high offices in English society, as Eliot did. Here was his suggestion. You take all the boys in English culture, and they don't basically see a man for seven years. Just women for seven years. When they turn seven, they don't see a woman again until their marriage. Well, I'm thankful God has his feet on solid ground and doesn't come up with any such goofy social engineering plans that would obviously completely fail. Proverbs offers no such ridiculous cure to temptation. The cure is not isolation physically. The cure is a heart guarded by the truth. And it's that cure alone which is going to always be sufficient for the temptation. Godly counsel always teaches that there are certain kinds of people we must choose to avoid for our own sanctification. I would pass that on even into the realm of evangelism. There are certain people we shouldn't evangelize or let me say it in the singular, there are certain people you should not evangelize and certain people I should not evangelize. There's plenty of people to share the gospel with. We need to be thoughtful about how we do that. I think of a man who talked with me and uh, he had been involved in adultery numerous times in his life, was on his third marriage, and he was explaining to me how God called him specifically to witness to prostitutes in Minneapolis. I said, I'm really questioning the call of God here. Now, he was the kind of guy who God showed up to him and visibly appeared to him, and you could never argue with him. But I think there's, for instance, in a radical situation, a man who should be choosing to witness to other people. 
So having said that, just for the sake of the gospel, and we know we want to share with all people the gospel, we need to be thoughtful of that. The point is there are people we need to avoid. Because of who you are in your situation in life, there are people we must avoid at all costs, and she is one of them. And let me add here, young people, for you as you venture out into life, I know that one of the great urges of your heart is to step out on your own and be your own person and do your own thing. You will not agree with everything that your elders say. You will not agree with everything that they think or with all of their warnings. But know this, for you to run off and to spurn counsel is always foolishness. It is just utterly insane to do that. Counsel is your security against disaster. Don't play the fool and spurn it. Just don't do that. It might be hard. The time will pass, and there will be a day when your perspectives change, and you thank God for those who coached you in the right direction. We come at verse 25, then, to the very central theme. The one from whom we are to be preserved is described in verse 24, but at verse 25, we come really to the central thesis and the moral imperative in this section. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. It could be translated eye, eyelashes, or eyelid. And pretty much whatever you do with one, you're going to do with the other. So it doesn't really matter how you translate it. But the point is that at the point of sexual attack, we make a choice to desire God or to desire a body. It's not sin to realize that a woman is beautiful or that a man is handsome. It may be sin that you have set that image before your eyes. But recognizing beauty is not in and of itself sin. Sin enters when we choose to desire that person for ourselves, actually, or in fantasy. And such desires are characteristically provoked by the way the seductress uses her eyes. There are certain looks that say, come to me, I'm yours, I'm available. And in this culture, it doesn't take very long to figure out what that looks like, what that eye contact looks like, for it's everywhere in the media. Learn where there is that contact and where there is that natural interest to say, I must control what I want. And what I must want is God above all else. Why is this kind of contact to be avoided? Why is this such a big deal? The rest of the passage, verses 26 through 35, will give consequences of failing to heed this wisdom. And we could outline this differently, but verse 26, I would put it this way, you'll be eaten alive. Verse 26, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Two interpretations here, which are probably show some differences between translations, but it's difficult to know, and depending on how we turn the Hebrew, whether the prostitute and married woman are the same person or two different people. If it's the same person, then it is saying she reduces you to bread and takes your life. It's a parallelism. But if we take these two to be two separate people, as the ESV does, the prostitute and the married woman are two different people. The prostitute you can purchase for a meal, but when you commit adultery, you've destroyed your very life. The cost is infinite. 
I tend much more toward the idea that it's a parallelism, that it's the same person, in part because married women, almost every prostitute in that time was a married woman, unless we delve into pagan situations where things were somewhat different. But for the Hebrew young man at court, the prostitute was a married woman who was a stranger from her circle of influence. And so I would, against the ESV, tend to take this more as a parallelism. She will reduce you to a loaf of bread. In other words, she will impoverish you. I think probably to be taken figuratively, though in some situations can be taken literally. She will reduce you to a loaf of bread. What is not in question in this difficult verse is the second half of the verse. She hunts your life. Do you remember Proverbs 31, our series through there? What did the virtuous woman hunt? What did the valiant wife hunt? Remember, she went out from her home and she hunted out food. And she brought it back to her family. This is the same counsel to these young men. There's a wife who goes out and hunts food for her family to bless them, to sustain them, to provide for them like a lioness. But here, this lioness is after you. You're the lunch. She's not coming to bring you something to eat. She's coming to eat you alive. That's a warning. It's a stiff warning. Secondly, you will get burned, verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Burning hot coals were scooped into a clay pot or fire pan with a fire tong or shovel. Are you going to take that shovel, go into some hot coals, hold out your long robe, pull it up, and shovel those coals into your robe? Not going to work very well, is it? Are you going to walk, take your sandals off, and walk across hot coals on the ground and not burn your feet? I know there's some people who can do that, and I have no idea how they do it, but the average person isn't going to do that. I can't walk across a hot driveway, let alone hot coals. Are you going to do these things and not get burned? No, you're going to get burned. Understand this, verse 29. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. You will be burned. The touch here, I think, is euphemistic for sexual involvement. But if you engage in sex outside of marriage, you are playing with fire. You will be burned. Don't do it. And I feel as if in this moment my voice echoes in a very empty room. In our culture, there is a cacophonous sound of voices saying exactly the opposite. May we in the church of Jesus Christ sound the tone of our gracious Father and say, don't do it. You will get burned. You will never compensate for your sin, verses 30 and 31 say, and we need to understand that fairly, but I think that is the point. Verse 30, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. And the Hebrew word hungry there means starving. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. Now, we have to see this idea in light of verse 29 and then in light also verses 32 to 35. So from the second part of verse 29 all the way down through the end of the chapter, this will put in view what is being said here. If a thief steals because he's starving to death, compassionate people are really not going to despise him. 
But he will make restitution. He's got to make restitution. It's still wrong to steal. But imagine a thief who you know is starving to death and having taken an apple from the vendor on the street, comes back the next day with seven apples just as good and puts them in the vendor's control. How much hatred are you going to have for that man? How, are you going to hold a grudge against him? No, you say he's compensated for what he's done. He stole because he was starving. But it's not going to be that way when you commit sexual immorality. It just isn't that kind of a world. In fact, you destroy yourself and your reputation. Verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor will he get. Now notice this in connection with the idea about the thief. And his grace will not be wiped away. I think there's a connection there to the thief. The thief can pay his way out of it eventually and be restored. But there is a disgrace that he will not wipe away when he's involved in sexual immorality. He lacks sense, the Hebrew word, deprived of heart. It refers to one who is lacking a moral center. Sexual immorality is a self-destructive act that destroys one's reputation in the community. There will be wounds, refers to the community's prosecution of the sinner, and there will be disgrace, which refers to the community's perception of the sinner. I don't know this world, do you? And it just isn't here anymore. There will be wounds, that there will be physical retribution for such sin. We don't live in this world. We live in a world in which there is so much anonymity. We don't see this public accounting for sin. But the sin isn't any different just because the prosecution has changed. In fact, this type of activity is now welcomed in our culture and encouraged at every turn. And there has to be a balance here as well. Let me address that for a moment. There's a strong warning here to those who have not been involved in sexual activity, a strong warning that we do not want to mute in any way. God intends for us to be frightened at sin. We don't want to mute that. Sexual sin is the kind of sin people will never forget. Now there is forgiveness within the church. More on that in a moment. But we have to understand, culturally speaking, within the society in which we live, it's a sin that people just don't forget. Now we balance that stiff, strong warning that God's Word provides out of love for everyone who is in a position to avoid such sin, balancing that, as Scripture will, with grace to the sinner. Your reputation may never be restored in this world because of sin that you have committed. Your reputation in the eyes of this world. But we can rejoice together as we come as sexual sinners to the assembly to know that in Christ there is forgiveness and restoration of fellowship with God and with one another. I believe that is the only way that a truly honest, spiritual, biblical family deals with such issues is not to mute the evil, but is to elevate the grace. To know that God can forgive any sin and has. And where there is genuine repentance, there is genuine forgiveness. That should never 
lead us to sin that grace may abound. Of course. So let's seek as an assembly to maintain that proper balance. Strong warning about the evil and the horror of violating God's will. On the other hand, great grace that embraces and forgives and draws people back into fellowship with one another. The world cannot extend that kind of grace. The unbelieving world will never forget. But by the grace of Christ, we can welcome back into fellowship those who are repentant because we all come as sinners. The final warning here is that you will create bitter enemies. Verse 34 and 35 again miss us culturally by a mile and a half. But for jealousy it makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. Now we don't have a cultural setting in which a significant degree of retributive justice is put in the hands of relatives. Think of the avenger of blood. Unlike the thief, however, you will find no way to compensate the violated spouse is the point here. And that spouse would generally be within the village, someone that you lived with the rest of your life. You're never going to make that man a happy man with you. Again, living in a suburban setting where we are tiny fish in an ocean of people, this doesn't hit us quite as hard. Because where there is sin, there can be a change of neighborhoods, there can be a change of states, for that matter. There can be a change of churches, and we can just, within a matter of months, completely reprogram our life to be among a whole other group of people. That's not known in the culture in which this book is written. But there is a point here that I think is applicable to us, and that is when we do such things, we create enemies. Just one warning in a string of many. You will be burned. You will be eaten alive. You will not compensate for this. You will destroy yourself and your reputation. You will create bitter enemies. There will be people who never forget. Be warned. Don't play the fool. Illicit sex in any form is destructive. And parents, I call you again, and all of the adults of this assembly, whether parents or not, that we need to teach our children along these lines. Now, how we do that will differ a bit within families and depending on age and all, many different factors, schooling, many different factors. But we need to remember that this is a calling that we have in an area of life for which we must arm our children. And all of us are God's children and need to take such warnings to heart. To know, if nothing else, that our Father's counsel is good. For some, I realize these are painful words because of painful experiences in your past. For others, perhaps the temptation is to think they're really not all that important. I don't have any problem with this. You never know. We must always guard our hearts and prepare ourselves for it. We are always putting up walls of resistance as we honor the desire for God, and set aside the desires for other things. But whoever we are, however we relate, there needs to be a word of instruction that is ongoing within our assembly. I have sat across the table from people in their 70s who are struggling to honor the Word of God in these matters. And we know from our culture that that struggle 
is coming and affecting younger and younger people all the time. We need to teach. We need to stand. And we need to uphold the beauty of God's counsel, which we considered a bit more last week. But thinking of our culture, we have to realize here, I think it's plainly clear, that we live in a far more complex culture than is being described here. In this day, young men had to be prepared for a married woman whose husband was out of town. To put one picture on it in a fairly clear picture. Or perhaps if they were traveling out of their area into a pagan area to avoid the temple where there would be prostitutes inviting them into the temple. There was a certain type of resistance that had to come in that kind of environment. You avoided certain places. You didn't go near the pagan temple. And if this woman showed up within your village whose husband was out of town and she gave you the look with her eye and said some things to you that invited you in, you had to just walk past and arm yourself against her. I feel like almost overwhelmed in the culture in which we are in. It comes from everywhere. Not just publicly, not just physically, but privately. There is a constant barrage of temptation and challenge for us. Let me say, you can get to the place of almost despair as you realize and come to understand through people's accounts how addictive this world's approach is to sexual deviance. But let's keep it simple and keep it centered where it needs to be on the face of Jesus Christ. What we must do in our hearts is to control our desires. To set our desire upon Him and to allow no other desire to steal us away from what He counsels us to do. It is a fight of our affections. To choose not to put those affections on any person other than our mate in this area but above all, to choose to put our ultimate affection upon Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and coming again, to whom I am accountable and will one day bow the knee. And as we continue to think in those terms, to live for the glory of Christ and not for our gut desires, may He become our gut desire in every situation, under every temptation, wherever we are. And may I sound one more word here of the great forgiveness of Christ. I hope you understand, and for those who visit with us, this is an important part of our understanding of the Word of God. There are churches you don't preach this passage in. It's too harsh. Brings up too many negative emotions. It leads people to not feel very good about themselves and the like. But what we need to understand is that God doesn't ever pull punches about sin. Whatever it is. But He does that not to be harsh. He does that to show us the depth of His grace. To show us what His mercy really is. We cannot understand that mercy until we understand the fullness of our sin. And then we begin to see the light of His forgiveness and His grace. 
there may be no social compensation for adultery. But there is something greater than that. And that is the eternal forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If you come today bleeding and wounded because of past experience, cling to the cross and know that you can for all eternity, that there will be forgiveness there forever and ever. And one day, your reputation will not only be cleared, you will be glorified with the saints forever and ever. But for those who are on the front side of such sinful experience, don't walk over the cliff. For those that have, you know that there is grace and love in Christ, and perhaps you know it uniquely. Cling to it. Thank Him for it. And revel in His forgiveness. He won that forgiveness by dying on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin to rise from the dead in victory over the wages of sin, which is death. Cling to the gospel and thank him for forgiveness. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father God, we need you. We need your counsel. We feel humbled before it. There is conviction of sin that we sense. And yet, God, for those of us who know you as Father, there's great joy. Our Father has done it again. He talks about life and what's really there and what we really face and about our sin and our alienation from you. You, you talk about it faithfully and honorably, winsomely, directly. God, I pray that we would follow you as our model as we train up a young generation, and that we would follow you in our own hearts to the very end of our days. God, our hearts bleed for the culture in which we live as it grows increasingly corrupt at the core. But I pray, God, that you would preserve us for the beauty of obedience that you have designed in your word and that you will sanctify us. If there is one who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would draw that individual to saving faith today to seek someone out and to say, I know that sexual sin is just one sin among many. How can I find forgiveness of all of them? We thank you that that forgiveness is available in Christ. To those who place their saving faith in his work on the cross and his resurrection. And I pray that you would draw people to Christ today. And may all of us be drawn to the beauty of Jesus, such that our ultimate and driving desire is Christ. Do this in us, Father, we pray. In his name, amen.